We're happy to have this episode sponsored by Real Mushrooms. You probably already know about some of the great benefits of adding mushrooms to your diet, like better sleep, greater mental clarity, and a stronger immune system. But not all mushroom products are equal. Real Mushrooms is the real deal. Many mushroom companies harvest the mushroom and the grain it's growing on. Real Mushrooms products contain no grains or starch fillers. They're organic, cultivated naturally, and third-party verified for beta-glucans, the compound that makes them so valuable as a supplement. They even have a science and medical team of doctors who ensure that Real Mushrooms meets the highest standards. What I personally love is how informative their website is. Have questions about what mushroom is right for you? They have a robust blog with articles ranging from women's health to what mushrooms are most beneficial to your pet. Want to boost your immune system? Have better sleep and feel more calm? Grab the link in the show notes and get 25% off of your first order. Curiously enough, acupuncture is not just sticking needles into people. It's part of a coherent and observation-based medicine that experienced practitioners of the art have handed down over the centuries. I'm Michael Max, your host and guide of Everyday Acupuncture. Listen in as we explore how you can apply the principles of this ancient medicine in your everyday life. Everybody, welcome to everyday acupuncture. My name is Margot Rossi and I'm hosting the show today. I am very happy to be here to help us get to know Michael Max, the creator and host of Everyday Acupuncture. Michael is a licensed acupuncturist and the director of Yong Kong Chinese Medicine Clinic in St. Louis, Missouri. He earned a master's degree in acupuncture and oriental medicine from the Seattle Institute of Acupuncture and Oriental Medicine in Seattle, Washington, which is where we met long years ago. I am a licensed acupuncturist, and I'm very happy to be here interviewing Michael. The reason I wanted to interview Michael is that uh, he has enriched our world of Chinese medicine through translating the work of Dr. Huang Huang through his practice and this inspiring and enlightening podcast so it's an honor to interview you, Michael. Welcome. <laughs> Thanks, Margo. <laughs> it's great to be here. Yes. On the other side of the microphone. Yes, I'm very happy we got you here. Uh, so, Michael, tell us, how did a guy like you end up in a place like this? Tell us about your journey into Chinese medicine and also how you made it to St. Louis. Oh, boy. Um, all right, I'll start with Chinese medicine. And the truth is, I landed in Chinese medicine due to bad luck. I was really sickly as a kid, and I had respiratory conditions all the time. I'd get colds easily. I would get these terrible coughs that would go on for months, months and months and months. And nothing ever really helped. I tried the Western medicine route. I was offered inhalers and things of that nature and told I need to be on them for the rest of my life. And, and really, probably because they didn't ha seem to help that much, and because I'm just kind of leery of medicine in general, I thought I'd really rather have the illness than have the medicine that treated the illness that didn't really seem to treat the illness anyway. So I gave up on Western medicine helping me with that, and I tried all kinds of other stuff. And none of it really touched it. And eventually, a good friend of mine in Seattle basically badgered me to go get some acupuncture. <laughs> he really did. And I thought, fine, fine, fine. I'm going to go do this. It's going to fail like everything else has failed. And wow. then you'll stop badgering me and, you know, we'll just get on with drinking beer or whatever. And so I went to this place called the Northwest Institute of Acupuncture and Oriental Medicine and uh, saw a couple of interns there, one of them actually being you. Yes. And, and I went and got acupuncture. Now, it was actually quite an amazing experience because I can remember the first time a needle being put into my back, it was like throwing a rock into a still pond. It 
there are these these weird ripples that just kind of floated all through me. And I remember being quite disoriented after that first treatment. It was it was profoundly relaxing. Mm-hmm. And I knew something had shifted. I mean, something just shifted in that in that first treatment. Now my cough didn't get better until <laughs> quite a while later. But something had shifted in that first treatment and shifted enough that when they said, do you want to come back next week? I said, yes, I do. Mm-hmm. And what I found happening was that other things started to change. Things that I didn't even go to see you guys for. Mm-hmm. My sleep got better. My, I didn't realize that my bowels weren't working that well because all of a sudden they were working really well. Yeah. My mood was good. I was less irritable. And then there was a point a couple of few months down the road where I remember getting a cold and then I recovered from the cold and I didn't have a cough. <laughs> and that was completely mind-blowing because that I could not remember a time when that had happened. And so I just started using acupuncture for my own health care at that point. You know, and this was over a course of years. I mean, at, th- at that point, you had come and gone. You were off to wherever you went after you graduated. I think you went to Hawaii, and then you ended up in where you are now, North Carolina. Yes. But, I, you know, I'd see other people, and then I'd see some practitioners in the area. And I started to get curious about it. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so I started reading, and the more I read, the more I wanted to read. And the, and the more I read, the more curious I got. And... You know, I was in my mid-30s. Honestly, I think I was hitting some kind of a midlife crisis. Mm-hmm. I was really ready to be done with being in, in high tech. Yes. Which, in retrospect, might have been a huge mistake because the internet hit mm. just a year or two after I got out of acupuncture school. So, you know, I mean, I really could have cashed out had I stayed in, but <laughs> I didn't see it coming. I should have seen it coming, right? But I didn't. Well, are you glad you didn't? Oh, I'm, I had an experience turning 50 a number of years ago and being really flipped out about turning 50 because um, I was actually in China at that time and I was on a bus to this little town where they sell these teapots that are famous. They've been famous for centuries. I'm on my way to this great place to buy teapots and I'm really excited about doing and I'm totally flipping out because I'm 50 years old. Mm. And, you know, I'm on this rickety bus with people smoking and it's, you know, it's dirty and it's dusty. And I'm thinking I'm 50. I should have a house. I should have a wife. I should have a retirement account. I should be at the top of my game. Um, I I should mention I was back there at that point working with Dr. Huang on this book. Yeah. That's what I was doing. That's why I was there. And, And I'm thinking this is not what 50 was supposed to look like. All these things I'm supposed to have, I don't have them. And so I asked myself the next important question, which was, all right, you've been knocking around Asia for 10 years. What would you change? What would I have changed in the last 10 years to be living this life I think that I should have been living? Mm. And the answer came back, absolutely not one thing. Yes. Not a thing. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about? Yes. You've had experience. Yeah. Okay. So, if that's the truth of the situation, then maybe I need to take another look at what it means to be 50. Mm-hmm. And I'd say the same has been true with my journey with Chinese medicine. I've not regretted a bit of it. It's been, it's been a fantastic opportunity to be of service to my community, to share a medicine that you know, as acupuncturists like to talk about, oh, it's got all this history, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it does, but but that's not the important thing. The important thing is that this is a medicine that deeply trusts life, and this is a medicine that deeply trusts the body mm. and has ways of going in and regulating things, usually in a pretty gentle way, that allows people's lives to shift. It changes trajectories of people's lives. And I'm not just talking about getting rid of a cough or being able to get pregnant 
or, or getting rid of your diabetes, it, it fundamentally shifts so many things at so many levels that you can look back in five or ten years and realize, oh, my life is different in ways that a medication never could make your life different. Yeah. So, Michael, do you find that's true? You could say the same of your patients, the effect that they have on you as well. The effect my patients have on me? Uh-huh. I'm, uh, ask, go deeper into that question. I'm, I'll, I'll ask it this way, or I'll preface it this way. When I was in acupuncture school and I was an intern, you were probably one of the most influential patients I met during that three-year full-time study. And that's because you came in with a really healthy dose of skepticism. (laughs) And you were so open and available to it in a way that neither of us expected. I, I didn't expect it of you, and I don't think you did either. I can remember one time you came in on a Tuesday, and we were doing auricular medicine, which... For our listeners, was system of Chinese medicine wherein the ear is looked at um, as embodying the entire body. So you can treat every organ, you can treat the spirit just by using points on the ear. And you were really disappointed that that was what we were going to do that day. You didn't <laughs> believe it. You know, I remember. I remember this. Do you? Yeah, because I had such an awesome ride with that right. back treatment you gave me. And you're doing all this weird stuff with checking my pulse and putting these yeah. things in my ear and da, da, da. I'm like, yeah, get on with it already. Right. And do you remember <laughs> what happened in that session? Well, let's see if our stories match. My recollection was I think you did two needles in my ear and uh, I, I went somewhere else for a half an hour. Right. Yeah. That, I would agree with that story. So uh, my question is, you know, you're saying how um, how this medicine has such a deep effect on you, and that's what keeps drawing you into your practice. It sounds like what keeps fascinating you is the the subtlety of the medicine, and also how deep it goes. How deep it goes, and the results that are seen. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I, for me, one of the key things in my work is just how important the relationship is between myself and the people who come to my practice. And I find that their experience and my experience of them also keeps drawing me into the medicine. So my question is, do you find that's true for you too? Or is it really the medicine itself that keeps pulling you into, uh, you know, this fascination, or maybe I could even say the love affair with Chinese medicine and philosophy? Yeah. I would say that my love of the medicine and my interest in the medicine, I'm not able to separate it from the relationship that I have with my patients and the connection with my patients because it all flows out of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There is no separation. Right. You know, we have this this idea in the Western world and, and with our conventional medicine that, that there's a thing out there to get rid of, or there's a thing out there to, you know, to do something to it or about it, and that there are patients and there are doctors, and, and we're separate, and there's a, a body and a mind, and it's separate, and that is an illusion. Yeah, and the, you know, the fact that in, in Western medicine, most physicians only have five to seven minutes with a client, so establishing that relationship is, that's so... We're very fortunate in Chinese medicine that we have the time and we have the system that allows for that and encourages us to create that relationship. Yes. Yeah, it's yeah, rich, I, isn't it? it? It's rich. What's curious to me is I'm often, well, I won't say accused because it, it, you know, <laughs> no one's waving a finger at me, but often my patients will say, God, I feel like I'm in a therapist's office. I hear this all the time. And... You know, that's not at all what I'm attempting to do. It's just that I invite my patients to bring their complete selves to the process. Well, that reminds me of another experience I had 
actually treating you. It sounds like you were my only patient in those three years. <laughs> I know that's not the case. <laughs> but you did have a lot of influence on me. Well, you know, there are influential patients. I can recall a few when I was in school that, you know, they're still kind of with me in a way. I haven't seen them or talked to them in 16 years. Right. Um, but sometimes they're kind of in the room. Yeah, I experienced that too. So this one time when you came in, I remember you had had um, a, a very strong response to the treatment that we gave you. And so you and I spent a lot of time just talking about it. And when I came out of the room, my supervisor was there. And I, I was totally embarrassed because I had, I had gone over my time. My next patient was waiting. Mm. And I apologized to him because that meant that I had also delayed him in his his time as a supervisor in the clinic. And he said, no, no, no. It is so important to talk to your patients. Please take the time to hmm. talk to them. That was really lovely. And again, just circling back to this, uh, this concept of the relationship being so important and how patients can really stay with us a long time through that influence. Yeah. Well, the relationship is important because <sighs> ostensibly – as practitioners, we're supposed to know a lot about healing. Mm -hmm. I find I always start with having no idea how I can help somebody. Yes. Right? I mean, people come in and they've got their diagnosis and they've got their story and they've got their symptoms. And you know, at one level, I'm supposed to take that and, and go, oh, yeah, well, I, I've treated that before. But I've never treated this person, and, and and until I sort of know the constellation of what I, of what's holding their suffering in place, I don't have any idea where to begin. Yeah, I let my patients tell me where to begin. Well, I just listened yesterday to your interview with Erica Elliott on environmental medicine, and there was a moment in that interview which was so beautiful. It was it was the pause where. You said how how important it is to say, I don't know, and to be in that unknowing. And part of her response to that was that that was the true scientist, the one who sits and observes the situation and just witnesses it. And I just thought that was a lovely circling around uh, both Western and Eastern medicine, how how the two can really support each other in that observation-based medicine. Yes. Listening, just listening and being in the, in the I don't know. Yes. I'm so curious these days, and maybe it's because I've been reading a Tom Robbins book recently. <laughs> so <that laughs> I'm under the influence. But this way that, that we've taken and we've broken apart art and science mm -hmm. and considered them to be separate, when really... There are two different ways of focusing attention. Yes. And, you know, we think about them being, or we talk about them being complementary to each other. But I don't think that's true. Art and science are not complementary. They work synergistically. Uh, yes. Lovely. And I think that the same thing happens in our, in our, um, in our clinics and when we're working with people. If we're just looking at, at someone as a piece of meat or as a constellation of pathology, then we miss all of what in Chinese medicine we call the zheng qi, mm -hmm. the part that is upright, solid, healthy. There's always a part that's healthy. Even in the midst of death, there's, there's something that's healthy. Yes. You know, death is not a medical condition. <laughs> That's lovely. Just had to stop there for a minute. Mm. So, Michael, you have studied and practiced this traditional medicine in China. Mm -hmm. And as you and I know, and maybe our listeners might be interested to know, Chinese medicine is a living, evolving tradition of medicine that has ancient roots. I think we're all aware of that. What I find so interesting about it is that it embodies numerous schools of thought and legacies from individual physicians who developed their own 
strategies, their own protocols and formulas and their own perspective on what was happening in whatever era they were experiencing in China at the time. So that medicine is really born and bred in that culture. It's absolutely integrated into it's un, it's inseparable from the culture. Yeah. It's completely embedded in the culture. Which makes it a lot easier, I think, for patients to get in the flow of it because they already are in the flow of it. They're, they don't know that they can't imagine not being in the flow of it. Right. <laughs> can, can I give you an example? Yes. Let me please. give you an example. So I spent a period of time in Beijing after being in Taiwan. And I, uh, I used to practice my Chinese by going down to this, uh, this big marketplace where they sold imitation antiques. It was huge. It was a big tourist place. And it was a great place to practice Chinese. So I go down there and schmooze around on the weekends and, you know, buy art. And I ran into this guy. Turns out he's a Chinese doctor. And we became really good friends. Oh, nice. And because of that connection, I ended up being offered a job. This was totally illegal, you know, at the <laughs> time. But, you know, I had guanxi, so it was cool. So I spent, I think it was a couple of months working in this clinic where he worked. And I was given patience, and I, you know, I made the salary of a Chinese doctor, which is not much, but you know, it's a great place to learn some Chinese medicine, practice yeah. it, work on my Chinese. It was a, it was a wonderful opportunity. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, for the patients that were willing to see a, a big nose honky like me. <laughs> I had a woman come in one day, and she says she sits down, and she says, "My period is usually perfect." I never have a problem with it, but last night I was out with some girlfriends, and I wasn't thinking, and I drank this cold drink, and my menstrual flow has stopped. I'm nauseous. I have a stomach ache, and I have a headache, right? Yeah. And I was like, bingo. I know. I, this is so simple, right? She took some cold in. It has congealed the chi in the lower part of her body. Of course, her period stops. The energy wants to flow down. It can't flow down. So she's got this stomach ache. Yeah. And it's rising upwards. And no show, she's got the headache. So all you got to do is open up the channels a little bit and warm up the belly, right? Yeah. Super simple. Super, super simple. And so I did that. And she comes back the next day and her period has started. Her nausea is gone. Her headache's gone. The, the flow isn't quite as good as she'd like, but it's, you know, it's better. I give her one more treatment, tell her to come back the next day, and of course she doesn't because, you know, she doesn't need to. Right. It was so easy, right? She sat down and told me in Chinese, through Chinese thought, some very basics of Chinese medicine that here in the West, our listeners might be scratching their head right now and going, what the hell is he talking about? Right. How did that constellation of symptoms how did she put together that any of that was related to each other? And why did she even mention the cold drink? Because this is the way Chinese people think. Chinese women never would drink a cold drink during their period. Right. Right. And we drink cold drinks here all the time. And so what am I talking about? So I'm talking about this because a Western woman would have come in and just said, my period suddenly stopped. In fact, she probably wouldn't have come to me. She'd go to an OBGYN. But even if she came to me, she'd just say, my period stopped. And I wouldn't have gotten these kinds of details. Now, I'm an experienced enough practitioner now. I, I maybe could have dug them out. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it's my job to dig them out. Right. But it's just not something that, that we would think about. No. And so it makes it so much easier to treat Chinese people because they'll, you know, or, or they'll say things like I'd hear in Taiwan, oh, you know, I was on the bus and, and I was under the air conditioner. And uh, so now I have this neck pain. Yes. It's like, yeah, easy, right? Oh, I have this headache too. Yeah, of course you do. Stay out of the wind. So there's some very simple concepts in Chinese medicine. We don't know about it here. And so it sounds weird. But let me give you a quick example. You know, often we hear this thing, oh, you, you sprain something, you have a muscle ache, you put ice on it, right? Yes. Women with, with menstrual periods <laughs> that are painful, what do they put on their belly for the pain? Do they put ice on the belly? No, they put heat, right? Because the problem is cold. So in some ways, we already know this stuff, but we haven't connected the dots. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you probably agree that when you elucidate these 
concepts to a patient, they get it. It makes sense to them. They don't sit there scratching their head going, I don't understand why, why you're saying that my problem is related to cold. They say, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense because whenever it's cold out or if I put ice on it, maybe it feels better in the moment, but later it's much worse. It's like it's not lost on our culture. We get it because we're all human. Well, I think we get it in some ways, right? If, if someone has stiff, achy joints, they're going to get it. They know the weather will affect them, right? They know cold and damp influences them. I have a much harder time with people that are, let's say, a little bit more healthy in some ways because they're still strong enough to, to be able to take the hits or people with digestive issues. So people with digestive issues... I try to explain, try drinking warm instead of cold. Mm-hmm. And it's still very, very di- For most people, it's very difficult. They love, love, love their cold water. And it's really, I find it challenging. Well, how, how relaxed are you? How easy are you with the art of metaphors? Oh, I'm fine with metaphors. <laughs> I'm just thinking if, um, you know, if, if, I'm working with a client and that's the topic right there is, and what a common conversation I think uh, all of us as acupuncturists can relate to that conversation, speaking about not having cold foods and beverages and how the stomach is like a cooking pot. The stomach acid is hot. Yeah. You know, I've got that, but honestly, I don't use that metaphor. I live in St. Louis, Missouri. (laughs) I'm already, you know, I'm already a little bit of a weirdo. Yeah. Yeah. I find that doesn't work for me. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I love the metaphor. I find it doesn't work. You know, and I'm getting up in age a little bit, so I'm a little bit more curmudgeonly these days. (laughs) And so I'm much more likely to say, well, how about an experiment? Because, you know, Ah. I I do like my scientific mind. How about an experiment? How about you just don't drink anything icy for three weeks, right? Or Or how about, let's say you just don't do any dairy for three weeks, or just leave the weed alone for three weeks. Let's, mm. let's just get some data points and see what happens. Yeah, that's, that definitely resonates with many people. Yeah, that works better for me. Yeah, definitely. I can see that. Hope you're enjoying the show. I'd love to know about what topics are of interest to you. If you have a health concern... Or if you want to know specifics about how acupuncture can help to promote vibrant well-being, visit the website at www.everydayacupuncturepodcast.com and send an email. Well, that kind of circles me back to my question, which was, you know, now that you're practicing here yes. in, in America, yep. um, there are so many ways in which Chinese medicine in America is so different from Chinese medicine in China. For one thing, just as we have a cultural melting pot, we have a Chinese medicine or Asian medicine melting pot where it's not just Chinese. There's uh, Japanese and Korean influences, Vietnamese influences here. Uh, we have people studying those branches of Chinese medicine in this country, we have people practicing it. And then we also have people making up their own stuff, mm-hmm. which I like to call American medicine. Mm. You mentioned, you know, your clients in St. Louis, you have a microculture there of how you have to fit this medicine in. Yes. Um, but I'm just wondering if you can speak more about having studied in China, seeing how the medicine is practiced there, coming here, having studied here as well as practicing here. What you see is some of the interesting differences in how the medicine has morphed as it has come over that great ocean? Wow. Uh, That's a good question. (laughs) That's a big question. It is a big question. It's a big question. Maybe we leave it for another time. Well, I don't know. I I guess a big question has a big answer. Yeah. (laughs) Go for it. A big front has a big back. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy, where to start with that? So let's start a bit with some Chinese experience. Okay. Uh, I had this great chance to work with this old guy in Taiwan. He let me sit with him in his clinic. 
And of course, people would come in when they weren't feeling well, because doctors go to people when they're not feeling well. That's how I met him in the first place. I was really sick. Or, or people go to doctors when they're not feeling people well. Go to, yeah, people go to doctors when they're not feeling well. What, what did I say? Anyway, and over there, people will often go to an herbalist or to an acupuncturist just because they're a, what we would say a little bit out of sorts. They're not sick, but they're not really well. Mm-hmm. Or often you'll see women in particular after their menstrual period, they'll go and get some herbs or they'll go and get a treatment just to kind of re-regulate their system after losing blood, right? Or if people have you know, been through some kind of an experience. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons. People aren't yet sick. They'll still go and get, they, they say, tiali, tiali, which we would um, translate as harmonize. Mm. You know? I, I, here in the States, we say tune up, and I hate that mechanical metaphor. Yeah. So I won't say it. Um, <laughs> just harmonize things. Over th- here, I think people have an expectation that Chinese medicine is kind of magical. And so their expectations are, generally speaking, way out of line with reality. Okay, so what do I mean by that? So expectations either, well, this is a bunch of nonsense and nothing's going to happen, or expectations, well, I'm going to be cured in one treatment, right? And it's never like that. This medicine is more like cultivating a garden yes, than fixing an engine. And so to sort of shoehorn that medicine into American thought, American lifestyle, in some ways, and and you see a lot of schools doing this these days, and I think you see a lot of practitioners doing it, they try to cozy it up as Western medicine in a way, right? It's this integrative medicine. Yes. You know, you see these ads with people wearing white coats and stethoscopes. We have nothing to do with that, right? Right. Maybe I'll get a, a, a new picture done for myself with the clinic with me in gardening boots or something. Oh, lovely. <laughs> I actually have a picture of two people gardening in my office. Yeah. Yeah. Because, because it really is, it is like that. Now, I think one of the things that we have going for us, especially with acupuncture, is because it works so under the radar of our usual Western thought, people will often have very deep experiences and and no idea of what's just happened to them. Yes. All they know is, huh, something. But there's no words for it, right? And then like my experience with you that first time, the main complaint may or may not change. But other things start to change. And I think it's our job as practitioners to help people recognize those places where things are beginning to shift because often that's not where they're focusing their attention. Right. And so in some ways we have to work as these guides and we have to help introduce people to their own body and being and experience. Yeah. So would you say that as a practitioner, you feel more the, the biggest role you play is as an educator or as a guide? I would say more guide than educator. Okay. Yeah. 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 Uh-huh. Um, and helping people sort out their experience. You know, there's, there's some folks that come in with, let's say, anxiety. And I hear about all this stuff going on in their life, and I'm thinking, <laughs> you should be anxious. Yeah. You know, that, that's actually not something that's wrong with you. That's an appropriate response to a trying situation. You know, your sympathetic nervous system should be in a high tone mm-hmm. around those situations. That's not something that's broken about them. It's, it's actually something that's right. And, you know, I mean, there's other situations where that's not the case, but sometimes just recognizing that what is is actually an appropriate experience. Yeah. And there, too, lies the strength of Chinese medicine in that we have the time, we, we create the time and space to invite that conversation with our patients and how important our lifestyle plays in our experience of our health. You were mentioning earlier of how 
Chinese medicine practitioners in this country were cozying up to Western terminology or Western appearances mm. in terms of our medicine. You know, this concept of lifestyle medicine now that's being co-opted by the Western world, that is our medicine. And, uh, you know, most traditions of medicine are lifestyle based. Yes. Which actually is a great thing. Yeah, absolutely. It's a wonderful thing. Because then you don't need Lexapro right. to take care of your anxiety. You're taking care of your anxiety with mindfulness. Right. Yeah. And changing the circumstances in which that anxiety has arisen. Ah. So. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's beautiful. Beautiful medicine is such a lovely life we have. I think we're very fortunate that we've found this. I'm a total lucky dog. Plus, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a little collar that has that on the <laughs> No, but maybe I should get one. Little dog tag. <laughs> so um, I'm making an assumption here about what, what branch of Chinese medicine you studied mm. at um, the Seattle Institute. And then also, when you went to Beijing, what was your milieu there that it was what we call classical Chinese medicine? Ooh, well, uh, we're getting into language here, okay? Yeah, well, I wanted you to, to elucidate that because that's kind of a hot thing in Chinese medicine. You know, I'm a classical practitioner. No, I'm a, T, I'm a TCM or ch traditional Chinese medicine practitioner. Right. And I have patients who are just like, what, what is the difference and why should I care? <sighs> in one sense, it's simply marketing and branding. Uh -huh. Okay. Uh, we live in a marketing world. So, you know, it affects us that way. Um, oh, I love this. I love what you just said. Yeah. <laughs> There's a handful of people I hope are listening. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a historian of Chinese medicine, but I've had, a converse, I've had some conversations with people who are more historians and have a lot more experience than I do. And it would appear especially if you look at the different herbal formulas that were used through different dynasties and different times, if you look at the different, I'm going to say cultures that China has been, the different uh, dynasties, <laughs> the different, you know, all through history, you know, it hasn't just been one China. China's a really dynamic place. And there's times where people have been living in peace and prosperity and times where they've been living in illness and war and so the medicines and the traditions of those times will look very different from one another. Yeah. There is no one Chinese medicine. My sense is there are, a, there are some underlying principles that really any of the different, I'm going to call them brands of Chinese medicine. Yes. They all have a similar root. So let me give you an example. Um, sometimes I get asked if I'm a five-element practitioner. Mm-hmm. All right, because that... That has a certain meaning in the Chinese medicine world, that you've had a certain training, a certain piece of the tradition. Well, the five elements in Chinese medicine is part of the philosophy and thinking of old Chinese science. And anyone who practices Chinese medicine, <laughs> acupuncture in particular, you cannot not be considering the influence of these five elements. Right. It's fundamental. And so while there's lots of different branches to this tree, there's a couple of, not just one, but there's a couple of deep, long, big, thick, hairy tap roots that they sprout out of. Yeah. Well said. So the question is not which branch is the right branch. The question is, does this branch work for you? Mm-hmm. Is this a branch that, that, that you can cozy up to? Is this, but more importantly, is this a branch that the practitioner has gone deeply enough into that they can apply those principles that come from the deep tap roots? Well, that sprouts up two questions for me. You just mentioned the importance of being rooted in whatever branch you've chosen yes. you know, as a practitioner. And um, I'm acutely aware for myself that Though I have studied and kind of applied myself in a particular branch, 
my own unique filters and my own talents really guide what comes through me. Mm. So it's kind of like, um, you know, you put the coffee in a filter and then you pour the water over it. So it's Chinese medicine, but it's going through this filter that's also changing what's going to end up in the cup. So I'm wondering for you, you know, for as long as you've been practicing, certainly you have folded into your medicine something that's uniquely your own. Oh, it's impossible not to. Yeah. I'm just wondering if you can speak about that. Do you have a sense of that uh, yourself? I don't think I really have a sense of that. If if I remember a conversation we had a week ago, you and I, we're talking about teaching or books or this or that, and I don't think I'm clear enough on what my unique aspect is with that mm-hmm. to really elucidate it. If I did, I'd be able to write the book. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I look forward to that. <laughs> I look forward to it as well. Uh, and then the other question that came up from that little tidbit you just shared was, how important do you think the physician's intention and expectations are in the medicine? I mean, even if, let's say, let's say one has dabbled in many branches and has not gone deeply into any one system, Perhaps they haven't, maybe they've just scratched the surface of the root system as well. But they come to their practice with a very clear intention of what they want to invite in that moment and what their expectations are of the medicine. Hmm. It's a good question. I think it's helpful to go deep in some aspects. I have a tendency to enjoy going wide. Mm-hmm. I'm a really, I'm curious. I'm curious about everything. And so it's easy to go wide and sometimes challenging to go deep. I've found that going deep helps to support the going wide. So yeah, for me, that's important. Let me relate a quick little story. I read a book some time ago about uh, this famous guitar maker. It could take him like 10 years to make a guitar. He's, he's a bit quirky. But his guitars are considered <laughs> sentient beings just about. I mean, they're incredible. Uh-huh. And um, in the book, there was this line about, well, what does it take to make an incredible guitar? And uh, the answer comes back, about 6,000 different things. But most importantly the state of the mind of the guitar maker as they're doing it. Mm-hmm. And, and I think this really applies to the kind of medicine that we practice. Yeah, absolutely. I love that quote. <laughs> it's really beautiful. I have one last question. Because mm. I think we've, I mean, there are lots of things I can circle back on. But So I know that your listenership consists of acupuncturists, students, patients, and then other. (laughs) All kinds of other. It's really fascinating. It's great. So I have kind of a, um, I don't know if I'm going to stump you on this one, Mm. but I'm going to pitch it to you anyway. So Hippocrates' famous quote is often translated as, life is short, the art is long, opportunity fleeting, and judgment difficult. So as an acupuncturist, and I'm also going to call you a scholar, Michael, you're just going to have to suck that one up. What do you have to say to our listenership regarding this journey for you and for them, this journey of life using Chinese medicine as a guide? Well, that last word you said, using it as a guide, rings a bell for me. We can use Chinese medicine to fix things. Right in in the classics, I can't remember which classic it is. Probably the Huangdi Neijing. You know, they talk about the sort of cruder level of doctors, the doctor that fixes things, and 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 that's a good doctor to be able to see when you need something fixed, right? Yes. But there, but there's this other level of doctor that kind of sees things coming before they arrive, and helps people to avert 
the mischief that would come from that. And, you know, we're talking about, I mean, I'm just talking about practitioners here, but the truth is, I think for each of us in our lives, we can fix the stuff that's, that seems broken or wrong or, or needs attention. And that's a really important thing to take care of, right? A baby's crying, you need to take care of them. Um, a bill needs to get paid. Uh, you need to make sure that you've got your finances in order. You know, there, there, there's that level. There's also this level of cultivation. There's this level of um, being enough in touch with how our life is unfolding that we can listen to or be drawn by the stuff that's kind of at the edges, that's still a whisper, or maybe not even a whisper yet, you know, but, but kind of present. And Chinese medicine allows us to practice like this, but really, I, I think it's, it's kind of a practice not for medicine, but for life. That, that quote that you just gave from Hippocrates, that's just good instructions for living, right? Well, you passed the test. Mr. Max. I have? (laughs) Oh, yes. But what test was it? Yes, that's what I'm wondering. What was it testing? (laughs) What was the question again? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay, so actually I have, I I thought of something else to ask you. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, in this journey uh, of medicine, Mm. Do you feel that you have arrived home? I mean, even though you may, of course, still be curious and yearn to learn more and go deeper, or do you feel like you have yet to feel grounded in it and confident, as, as confident as you want to be in what you practice? And I'm asking this in particular mm-hmm. for those of us who do practice Chinese medicine or who are studying it, you know, that... Um, I feel like sometimes it's a dirty little secret that some of us have that actually we are still practicing. We're still learning. We're still growing in ourselves to understand this. So how is it for you? Absolutely growing in this. <laughs> I can't I mean, how can you practice not how can you practice medicine and not be constantly learning? Yeah. I, I can't imagine that as a possibility. So yes, always learning always curious, often in trouble. And I, yes, I've been doing it long enough that I'm confident. Not always confident that I can help, but confident that I can enter into the process, confident that I can sort of open up my heart and open up my toolbox and, and find something. And confident, here's where the confidence is really lovely. And, and this is where I feel like a scientist more than anything else. Because, you know, a scientist is as happy to get a no as a yes, right? <laughs> Someone who's really looking at the world and really looking to dig into it and really looking to answer a question, a yes is a no is as good as a yes, right? You're just looking to see what is. Yes, yeah. And so I have enough confidence in what I've been doing that when people come in and something hasn't worked or something's gotten worse – or something's gone sideways, that's useful information. Yes. It's helpful. You know, it helps, it helps create the next step. So that's where I'm at with it. And of course, constantly learning. I mean, I've got, I've got a, a pile of books here in Chinese and English, both that are constantly chewing through. What, what's on the top of your list? Do you have something on the top? Um, at, yeah. At the moment, there's a book on, uh, Tong style acupuncture. Okay. That I'm uh, that I'm reading, and then there's a, a book that I'm working on with a friend, a translation uh, uh, on some herbal medicine that I've been very slow on translating, but it's it's still on the top of the list too. Hmm. Yeah, and then sometimes I just go to the bookshelf and and pull something off and just open randomly to a page and and see what it has to say. Yes, you know. I mean, yeah. the study of medicine is not linear, <laughs> right? You can use your whole life as, an, as a way of studying medicine. Yeah. Well, Michael, this has been so enriching for me personally, just listening to you. There have been many pauses here for me. So 
I thank you for your wisdom and sharing. Is there anything else you want me to inquire about that we didn't touch on? I don't think so. I just um, I want to thank you for being there at the beginning of this journey. Oh. And, and for being there at major transition points on this journey as well. You know, I wouldn't have gone to acupuncture school if I hadn't had that conversation with you. Where, do, do you remember the conversation? I do remember the conversation. Yeah. What do you remember about it? Oh, okay. Here's my artist brain. I remember sitting with you and the feeling of the sun and the sounds around us. We were having, I don't know if we were having lunch or if we were having coffee or tea or whatever. But I, I just remember the sensation of being with you in that moment and just feeling how right it was. I love that. <laughs> I love that. Now, you use that in your practice with your patients, don't you? Uh, what? Which part of it? This artist piece that recognizes the field that you're embedded in. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Here's what I remember. I'd already had a master's degree that I wasn't using, and I just paid the damn thing off, and I didn't want to go and get another master's degree for something that I may not do. And you said, well, why don't you just begin? You'll fall in love with it in a few months or not. And if you don't, you just leave. All you've done is learn more about something you're interested in. And if you fall in love with it, then you've got it. Either way, you can't lose. I'm so glad I said that or that you remember it that way. <laughs> That's my recollection of that particular moment. And isn't it amazing how these moments hold so much? Yeah. And yet, what does our mind grab? One little piece of that story. Yeah. Well, I'm so happy for you, and I really appreciate how you have enriched our world. And by our, I'm speaking for those of us who practice Chinese medicine. And of course, it's just, it's lovely to know you're my colleague and my friend. It's lovely for me too. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Everyday Acupuncture. If so, please take a moment, click on the iTunes review button, and leave a review of the show. And be sure to tune in again next week. 